The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, June 27th, and at this hour, if you are a real estate professional, you must hear about Fordham University's new institute, designed to take you to the next step in your career. The special advisor to the program is here this morning, and we're going to talk to him. Also at this hour, if you've been living in New York City for a while, you already know that a monthly rent payment here could easily cover a mortgage and utilities in other parts of the country. So when is it the right time to buy? We will discuss that and more. Plus, the panel is here for hot topics. But first, I'd like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. I am your host, Vince Rocco. And if you want to call into the program this morning, the number is one 472 5788. We have a very interesting show this morning. The Fordham Real Estate Institute here in New York City at Lincoln Center provides professional real estate certificate programs, which started last February. They were at the time proud to announce that Hugh Kelly has been named special advisor to the program effective immediately. In his role, Mr. Kelly is responsible for guiding the direction of academic programs, development content, recruiting uh, faculty, and performing industry outreach. He reports directly to Anthony Davidson, Dean of Fordham School of Professional and Continuing Studies. The appointment of Hugh Kelly as special advisor further positions the Fordham Real Estate Institute as the leader in professional certificate programs in the real estate arena. He has a proven track record in business and academics, and we are pleased to have him join us as as they launch uh, their endeavor over there at Fordham. In addition to his work with the Fordham Real Estate Institute at Lincoln Center, Mr. Kelly also heads his own consulting practice, Hugh F. Kelly Real Estate Economics. He previously served as clinical professor in New York University's Shack Institute of Real Estate, where he taught for more than 30 years. And Hugh also wrote a book, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So good morning. Wonderful. It's nice to be here, Ben. Thank you so much. You know, it, it, it's interesting. <clears throat> Every time I have guests here who sort of multitask, I have mm-hmm. to ask the question, how do you do all this? You special advise uh, a real estate institute at Fordham University. You have your own economic uh, real estate practice. And you have time or you find time to write a book. Where does all this time come from? It's uh, organization. It's lists. And uh there's nothing quite like a deadline to focus your mind. Deadlines are amazing, but you know, how do you prioritize your day? I mean, we all here in real estate go through, you know, sellers and buyers, <clears throat> renters in some cases, and it's oftentimes difficult for us to prioritize. I mean, before I go to bed at night, I have my trusty little, you know, iPhone in my hand trying to figure out what's my next move or first move in the morning. So how do you prioritize such a busy schedule? Well, you know, there's an interesting uh, little matrix uh, that I find very, very useful. Uh, You break it into four quadrants along. One is a scale of how urgent is it? The other is how important is it? And something that falls into the important and urgent 
uh, quadrant goes right to the top of your, your list, right? You know what helps us prioritize our urgent list is the emotions of our customers. It's, you know, everybody's got such emotional highs and lows. So who's ever reacting more strongly at any given moment, I think, becomes at least my priority. It's interesting. Well, often pay- paying clients versus freebies are another way to organize. So there you have it. All right. So the professional certificate programs offered by Fordham uh, Real Estate Institute are designed to help current and up and coming industry professionals move to the next level in their careers. This is not a program where you can get your real estate license as a brand new agent. So your the industry recognized courses deliver practical professional skills and knowledge. Talk to us about the program and tell us a little bit about what the program brings to the table for the established professional. Surely, you know, so the, as we started at Fordham, we started with these professional certificate programs. Uh, they would be programs uh, in investment, programs in construction, uh, uh, things in the practicalities of, of uh, the real estate business, lending. And so <clears> what you do is you go through a uh, defined sequence uh, uh, in, the, in the course where you learn uh, two things. What do you need to know? And what do you need to know how to do? And that that is for working professionals really key. So, for example, the real estate finance and investment. What is the profile of, of student who comes to take that particular course? I'm in real estate 15 years, and I look at this and I say, well, maybe this is of interest to me. But why would that be? What 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 do I what do I get out of that? The finance and investment piece well, of, this, of the program. You know, tip, typically, you might be uh, working for a financial institution, either a traditional financial institution like a bank or an insurance company or a private equity firm, and you want to to advance your your career. You see the people above you have gained a lot of their experience uh, on the street. This is a way for you to to accelerate and to focus that, that activity. That's the nature of education. Uh, the real estate development uh, curriculum. So that says to me, you're talking about site selection, land land use, entitlements, market and feasibility analysis. So this is more for people who work in the development aspect of building buildings, whether commercial buildings or residential buildings, the background that goes into putting these things up before an on-site sales team comes on to sell them. So is this is this sort of what I'm going to learn when I take this particular class yes it is and there are different levels so we're we're doing this at the certificate level which is a compressed uh, six or eight week uh, a course of studies uh, but then as we build the graduate program which we hope to launch next uh, January you'll uh, uh, find those courses and sequences of courses in more depth than in, in, in greater detail explain to our listeners out there the the difference between certificate programs because I have taken some of these classes at another institution mm-hmm. uh, in the past um, NYU as a matter of fact and um, I think what people don't understand is you, you're not matriculating in a, in a graduate program or even an undergraduate program when you take these certificate programs correct that's right it's a more limited commitment it's a more focused commitment and a more economical uh, uh, course of, uh, of study uh, uh, for a master's degree, of course, you're trying to learn more theory. Uh, uh, and theory is an important guide to practice, knowing uh, what uh, what to do, not just how to do it. Uh, I think in many ways, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've had some, some chinks in the armor of, of graduate studies in business uh, because we've focused so much on technique and less on the judgment that guides the, the application of this technique. Quick question: Does this count for continuing education 
as well? It is. For- uh, the certificate program is a form of continuing education. Okay. And uh, uh, depending upon uh, the requirements of the professional organization, which is demanding continuing education units, uh, it may or may not satisfy those. Well, so that, that has to be applied for. Yeah, I'm referring to the New York State requirements for uh, when the a Department pro- of State. Department are, of State, when they have to up their license every two years, does, yeah. does it count toward that? Do you know? But it, uh, as I say, it depends upon the organization that that uh, uh, you're doing. You know, for example, if you're an appraiser, right? Uh, uh, you are required to get CEU uh, uh, credits. Uh, uh, but uh, programs that qualify for appraisal CEU credits may not qualify for brokerage. And I would I would think though that that would be a very expensive continuing educational endeavor. In other words, these are college you know level classes and they're pretty expensive, and they also go on for a long period of time. So it may it may you know re- um, satisfy the the requirement, but I think it's probably the long road to doing that. However, if you have other interests. By completing this program, and you can do that also. Well, that's what that's I was. Right. That's what I was thinking. If you could kill two birds at one stone, right. I always, I always wonder because I have a lot of friends who are in the consulting side of real estate. So you know, they work for companies like McKinsey and Accenture. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see people who are consultants for these big firms coming to take your certification courses? Like you were just saying, one of the you know sectors is construction, and I know, of course, construction management is a big consultancy in the in the country. Do one you ever course, see that? One of the programs. <clears throat> so yeah, yes, and I uh, I think our experience at, at NYU, where I was for a long time, is sort of the the model that we've migrated. Bob Morgenstern, who runs the the, the Fordham program for many years, was the head of of the the uh, certificate programs at NYU Shack. Let me ask you something. So classes are available in person on campus at Lincoln Center only, not in your other uh, locations at the moment. That's correct. Although uh, we are actively exploring. Uh, the Westchester campus as a place to uh, to provide uh, courses, both at the certificate and at the graduate level. And you can also take these cl- classes online. It's a mixed medium. Uh, none of the classes are 100% distance learning, uh, but uh, all of the classes have the capacity to have some distance learning components. Let me ask you something about the the industry of real estate, okay? Because we as brokers here, agents here, have a, a you know a, a whole different love fest with it, and and a whole different perspective on it. But you, as an educator, and you as someone who you know teaches real estate or has taught real estate before, consult in it, etc., uh, design programs as special advisor. What do you think is the absolute fascination with New York City real estate? With almost anybody that you talk to out there, you go to a cocktail party and everybody wants to, especially if they hear that you're a real estate agent. Oh, my God, let me ask you about this. Just like if you're a doctor, you know, doc, I got a pain over here and I don't know what to do about it. Free consulting, right? What is it about this industry that is so remarkable it that touches, everybody has to know it about it? It touches everybody's lives. You know, you work in real estate, you live in real estate, you shop in real estate, you vacation in real estate. The only way you can get away from real estate is by going on a cruise ship. <laughs> But can you really get away from it on a cruise ship? I don't know. Uh, that's uh, that's a between your ears question. <laughs> All right. Let, we have a few minutes left of the segment. Tell us about your consulting business, Hugh Kelly Real Estate Economics. So aside from the the, the special advising that you do at Fordham uh, Institute, what is your consulting practice all about? It's an outgrowth of, of my 20 plus years as uh, a consultant at Landauer Associates, uh, uh, where uh, I was a chief economist and head of research for many years. 
Uh, when I left Landauer in 2001, uh, there were a number of clients who uh, came along with me because the new owners of Landauer no longer wanted to do that kind of, of uh, for-fee uh, economic consulting. Uh, so I wound up uh, doing things as large as the World Trade Center. Uh, I was active in the, the uh, uh, redevelopment uh, uh, in the insurance case. Uh, wound up doing some consulting on the ARC tunnel, uh, which never got uh, built. But that, they asked me to to evaluate uh, implications of, of, of cost overruns and in that down to uh, very simple uh, uh, things. I've been active in affordable housing in, in the Brooklyn area and actually served as the president of Brooklyn Catholic Charities uh, Affordable Housing Development Corporation for six years. So your clients are really literally across the board. Yes. they uh, 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 you know, One client uh, that I work for, uh, HQ <coughs> Capital Partners, uh, intermediates uh, Asian and European uh, wealth into U.S. Uh, real estate. Uh, 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 I've done work for brokerage uh, networks around the country uh, and uh, uh, work for institutional clients as well. All right, we have to leave it there and take a break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be back to talk to Hugh about a book he wrote, 24-Hour Cities, right after these messages. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We are back. We're talking to Hugh Kelly, who is Special Advisor to the Fordham Institute of Real Estate, new program for, for professional studies. 
here in New York City. Um, all right, so Hugh also wrote a book. It's called 24-Hour Cities. It is the very first full-length book about America's cities that never sleep. I really like that. And before we went on the air, I, I told you I've always, you know, kind of related to New York City as the city that never sleeps. I mean, that's not my words. It's, it's come from other people, but I've adopted it. Over the last 50 years, you say the nation's top live, work, play cities have proven themselves more than just vibrant urban environments for the elite they are attracting a cross-section of the population from across the U.S. and are preferred destinations for immigrants of all incomes. This is creating a virtuous circle wherein economic growth enhances property values, stronger real estate markets sustain more reliable tax bases, and solid municipal revenues pay for better services that further attract businesses and talented individuals. Yet, just as a generation ago, cities like New York, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, and Miami were broke financially and physically, interesting, scarred by violence and prime examples of urban dysfunction. How then, in in your research, did this turn around? What happened? But that's, you know, it, it's a combination of things. You know, it's uh, cities that were uh, daring to be themselves. Um, uh, there's... Uh, great homogeneity, actually, across many, many cities in America. If you take a look at those cities that have successfully uh, uh, broken out of the pack, the New Yorks, the Miamis, the San Francisco. Miami especially, I, these, I would think. These are, these are different cities. Mm-hmm. Each has their own uh, uh, ability, and they weren't afraid to confront their problems. Uh, you know, I like to tell a story about Epcot. Uh, you know, Epcot is Disney's experimental prototype city of tomorrow. I've traveled around the world. There is no city that looks like Epcot. No, <laughs> uh, no. And, and I think there's a reason for that. The Disney company and Walt Disney himself hated messiness. They're very uncomfortable with that. Uh, but cities are inherently messy. Absolutely, especially these bigger cities That's that right. we just rattled off. And, and so a city that looks at that and says... This is not a disadvantage. This is an advantage if we solve the problem. Because problem solving, focus and attention on a city's problems, and New York had as many problems as any other city, causes you to innovate. And it's the climate of innovation that attracts the brightest and the best to come from all around the country and all around the world to these cities. And that is is what creates economic dynamism. But but isn't that based on people wanting to be innovators and and wanting to in, in you know get involved in whatever the issues of a big city are messiness you know political infrastructure etc. crime, you've got to have people who want to innovate and change, and really make a difference before we can accomplish those goals. Correct. I th- I think that's right, but we think. You know, particularly as educators, too much at the elite end of things. Innovation happens from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. I take mm-hmm. my neighborhood, and uh, the beginning of my book has four or five pages just descriptive of the Kensington neighborhood of Brooklyn, which is not a Gold Coast neighborhood. You know, and uh, you look at at let's take the Green Grocer, that's on on the corner of Church Avenue and East Fourth Street. It's called Golden Farms. It says. Russian, Turkish, Ukrainian, Israeli gourmet foods <laughs> open 24 hours. You know, so here in a, 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 a neighborhood that's far from the bright lights, big city, you have a business established by immigrants. It's, it's owned by Chinese. 
is fully staffed by Mexicans. And it serves a highly immigrant neighborhood, as you can as you can tell. But it has enough business to sustain itself on a round-the-clock, 365-year uh, uh, basis. That's innovative in my mind. So do you think, um, I guess me personally, I don't, I'm, I'm a huge New York fan, always have been. I guess when you're from here, it's hard to leave, but I do love going to San Francisco a mm-hmm. good amount. And I find it to be, there are a lot of similarities and in, in various ways. And I was thinking of when you were talking about innovation of San Francisco and how only in the last eight to 10 years has it innovated so much because of the tech world. And do, do you ever see, so in my opinion, like what, I guess, what level of something like the tech industry does that fall under? Is that more towards the bottom or is that more towards the top of where that's coming from and where the influence is? Yeah. San Francisco is, is a very compact place. It's at the end of a, of a peninsula that's been known for its technological development at least as far back as, as World War II. Right, and probably even further, uh, further back there. So there was a foundation that was laid by Stanford University, being there by Berkeley, being across the uh, the harbor. Uh, it's been an immigrant city forever. Uh, uh, its current focus as a tech city is just one phase in in its economic history, and I don't think the last phase. The flip side of the innovation and the changes and 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 the you know the urban enhancements of all these cities, why are other cities still stuck on the hollow downtowns and sprawling suburbs that make for a nine to five urban configuration? They haven't necessarily gotten to where some of the other places have gotten. What 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 is that about? Some don't want density, and you have to want density for this for this to happen. Uh, one of the threshold um, uh, criteria for being a 24-hour city, according to, to my study, is that you have to have uh, a concentrated downtown population, at least 10,000 people per square mile. Okay. That sustains mm-hmm. restaurants. That sustains uh, supermarkets. It sustains walk-to-work businesses. 10,000 per square mile. Per square mile. Now, so now New York City, citywide, city it's 28. Yeah. Manhattan is 64, 64,000 per square, per square mile. mile. Yes, Whoa. it's off the charts, for, but most cities are, don't achieve that. So some cities don't want it, but of those that want it, not everybody is successful in getting it. And I, I, uh, I think Houston is making great strides in redeveloping its downtown. It's doing a really wonderful job. Phoenix is trying very, very hard, but totally unsuccessfully. They've built uh, a downtown baseball park, a basketball arena, a performing arts center, a, a very nice art museum. Uh, they've got a convention center. They've got all of these lists of ingredients, but they don't have the recipe. And the reason they don't have the recipe is they've not invested in uh, giving people a reason to live downtown. And so what happens on a Friday uh, afternoon at 5 o'clock, even if it's a beautiful 70-degree spring morning, not 120 the way it is in the summer, people just get out of their air-conditioned office, go to their air-conditioned car, and go to their air-conditioned suburb. 
I couldn't agree more. I think that um, I love going to smaller cities like Austin and even Dallas, um, you know, Portland, because mm-hmm. I always find it interesting. Whenever I try to go to a small city, I try to, I like staying in the center mm-hmm. of cities. I guess it's a New York side of me, but I love to start from the middle, which I feel in the smaller cities are always the financial district. And I walk out. So I try and, you know, and what I always find is that as opposed to New York, where as you go towards the center, you find more and more retail. Um, I find that as you go out in the smaller cities, you find more and more retail. And I think that that's a sign of exactly what you're saying about how people don't necessarily want to go into the center to have everything. Like they want to be able to get everything just outside. Yeah. The key word that you used was your verb. When I go to a city, I walk. Mm-hmm. And uh, that walkability implies both density and proximity. And as Jane Jacobs uh, long ago reminded us, diversity. So it's not just diversity of uses, where you work, where you shop, where you go out for entertainment. But it's also diversity in the quality of the uh, of the real estate that's there. So Jane Jacobs said that growing cities need old buildings. And this comes back to innovation because it's the older buildings with a low, lower cost basis that provide innovative startups with lower cost options uh, uh, than new construction high-rise buildings do. So your research identifies the ingredients of success and the recipes that put them together, right? So you've touched on some of them. What 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 are they? What what are what are they in 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 general? In, uh, so we 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 start, I think, with the catalytic ingredient of residential density. Mm-hmm. That's that's the catalytic, uh, the yeast that makes the bread rise, right? You know, but you also need a, a city to be safe. So I look for cities that have on the uh, FBI crime index uh, crimes of 5,000 per 100,000 population or lower. Uh, New York City and L.A. actually do very well on that, uh, that scale. Interestingly, the suburban cities surrounding New York City also do very well on that. Crime is relatively low in a place like Yonkers and New Rochelle up in Westchester County, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, I look... Uh, I went to school in New Rochelle. I love New Rochelle. You know, I look... Uh, uh, for uh, 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 for good transit access, uh, so that you don't clog up your center with cars, so that that eases everybody in get in getting around. Uh, I look for a diversity of uh, ethnic restaurants uh, because again, that gives people more choices over over time and establishes an identity for uh, for the city. You mentioned Austin as a place that you particularly like. I love Austin's Austin's uh, city motto, keep Austin weird. Now, if you propose that. I never heard that. Yes, keep Austin weird. Now, if you propose that to an economic development class somewhere, and say your city motto and your strategy, and it's it's worked, but it goes against the grain of of most standard thinking of how you develop a country. All right, the book just received the gold award in the Robert Bruss Real Estate Book Competition held by the National Association of Real Estate Editors, and the award was presented to you last week in Denver. How did that feel? That felt very, very good because these are the professionals about writing about real estate, you know, so to, to receive an honor 
from from them was uh, especially significant. But more more so, the book uh, and the and the academic research that lay behind it was my attempt to make this a mainstream topic of study in ec- in urban economics and in economics geography. And this is just another step along the way of validating that um, it's amazing to me how seldom the uh, <clears throat> the plans for how do you develop your your municipal economy uh, treat real estate as uh, as a driving force, and how often it's just assumed to be a secondary effect. I think that's that's backwards. Real estate. Uh, is is uh, a force that changes cities, and it changes the lives of the citizens of uh, of uh, uh, of the place. And so, I think you can't pay too much attention to it. All right, we have to leave it right there. The book is Twenty Four Hour Cities. You can find it online and in bookstores. The author Hugh Kelly, also special advisor to the Fordham Real Estate Institute. Hugh, thank you for coming here today. Good luck with the book and with the future at the Fordham Institute of Real Estate. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back and we are talking to our panel Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate and Phil Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. So, Let's get right into it. They trashed it. They threatened it and tried to exterminate it. But now they're willing to pay for it. In a major <laughs> ship, the Corcoran Group, Douglas Elliman, Nest Seekers International, and Bond New York are taking part in Street Easy's premier broker program. That is a program that lets firms purchase bundles of buyers' leads from online listings uh, platform. And this, according to The Real Deal, the move represents a dramatic 180-degree turn 
for some firms, most notably Corcoran, whose CEO Pam Lieben lambasted the ad program and said later that her firm would not reimburse agents who take part. It could also indicate that the established firms are now more willing to play the role of Rainmaker for their agents, spending time and cash on generating and distributing leads. It is a strategy that some of the city's newer firms have already embraced. I mean... I have so many mixed feelings about this, and I can probably go on for a whole show about it, but but seriously, <clears throat> and I remember uh, at core, Sean Osher had sent an email around saying that he was not going to be supporting this, as did Pam from Corcoran and Element, as we all talked about it. Why the change? I mean, I mean what, what's going on? I, I was, sorry, I was going to say that uh, a couple of things. So I think, first of all, when it first came out, the thought was this is going to hurt the listing side, the agents that are that have listings on the site. But Barely. then, right? But then, what happened was the buyers' agents started to use it, and they were getting real leads, and it was working. And then, and now you're a firm, and all your competitors are buying these leads, taking essentially these buyers away from you. So you have to now compete. But I will say though, so I think that's why they changed their mind. But I, I do think it's something that was very important because I was personally very against it when I first saw how it was communicated on the website. I thought it was very disingenuous. I felt like it was misleading to consumers. However, I went on recently and they must have made a change over the last week or two, maybe a few weeks. And I think it's okay now because I think it's completely transparent. And that's also like just at least break. We're the same way. Everything has to be 100% transparent. Right now, when you are a buyer on the site, it seems clear that you can try to get a what they call a premier agent or a buyer's agent to help you, or you could contact the seller's agent. It was not clear when this first rolled out. It was very unclear, and I think in a in a, almost a dishonest way. So I do think that that also helps some of these bigger firms say, you know what, as long as it's transparent and it's not quote unquote confusing to the consumer, let's go let's go ahead with it. I think it's also just the you know, normal economics. I think if you look at it in a more general sense, you know, Shreedies is a conglomerate. Like, you can't just ignore arguably the biggest outlet of New York City real estate to the public. And as a big firm like Element or Corcoran um, that are different, you know, than the firm I'm at, like Core, that's smaller and doesn't have as much, um, I guess, you know, just doesn't have as much brokers. So you have a much smaller influence. Um, I think you have to give in at some point, no matter how bad or good it is. So if you look at it on a more, you know, wide range scale, you can't just have a bad relationship with the biggest outlet out there. I agree with that. But I want to go back to Phil's point for a minute, because you say it's become a little more transparent than it was in the beginning. Mm I, I think it's been, the, the 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 screens have been rearranged. I'm not necessarily going to agree with the word transparent. They've arranged uh, stuff on their the the listing page a little more clear. However, the listing agent is still all the way down at the bottom. And so, if you are a novice to real estate, you know, searching in New York City, and you don't really understand the street easy, you know. Uh, phenomenon, you're going to say, oh, contact agent. I'm going to click there. When you click on that, it goes right to the the agent who buys that time and space. I think um, if it, you're a little more sophisticated, you're going to scroll all the way down to the bottom and find the li- li- this listing by the Corcoran Group. But no, it's, so it's not like that anymore. I mean, I just went on yesterday. Maybe they made a change over well, the last 24 hours. I haven't seen it last yeah. week. So now, yeah, so now there's a tab. There's two tabs. One is essentially buyer's agent, and the other tab is seller's agent, right next to each other. Okay. All right, that's beautiful. And that's so that's now the, the only thing that Street Easy does is the a tab that is initially 
sort of pressed is the buyer's agent one, right? Well, of course. But you could see right next to it, seller's agent. And when you go to seller's agent, it used to be that it was very difficult to contact the seller's agent. Right. But now when you just go to that tab, seller's agent, now it's just like it used to be. You email. The, so I, I, to me, as long as it's completely transparent and it's clear, and I, I do think now it is, and believe I was a harsh, harsh critic of it because I cannot stand when you're trying to mislead the consumer in some way. And that was, I'm, I'm not going to say the intention, but that was definitely what was happening on the first rollout right. of this. It, so, but now it's it's a little, a little more transparent. Yeah, also, it, it Vince, was not the intention. It was just a revenue-producing mechanism for Street Easy to make more money. Right. I mean, let's to, be clear about to, that. To learn from <clears throat> how Hugh put this, um, you use a very interesting word, not. So how many people in New York City are really novices to looking at real estate? I think that percentage is extremely low. Good point. So I I think most people are smart enough to know that um, they're contacting someone who's not associated or better yet, if they actually are contacting someone who's just trying to get leads as a buyer's broker, if they have one showing with them and they are clearly seeing that there's a buyer's broker and a seller's broker that they're meeting, they will learn it very quickly. Well, you know what I say, the jury is still out, and, and we're going to see how this all plays out. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to me to see how some of these top firms have already adopted it. And let's see, however many more, my company, Halstead, is still on the fence with it. And as uh, publicly said, they don't know yet where they want to go with this. So let's just see. Moving on, forever the bridesmaid. I don't know if anybody in here is going to be a bridesmaid, but are listings that linger doomed More than 180 days on the market, expect price cut after price cut. So say industry insiders. All right, so we have listings out there for 180 days plus, 90 days, whatever the number is. Are they doomed? No. How does, how does the bridesmaid have a thing to do with this? <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I was yeah. just wondering, like, what Wherever is that? the bridesmaid do? Waiting, oh, waiting, just, waiting, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um... No I one guess, wants me. I guess I just never, it, it always shocks me when I see a listing on the market that's a resale, not a new construction that's on the market for over 180 days because, uh, you know, a <clears> typical <throat> exclusive is six months, hence 180 days. So either the seller is not very specific and, you know, detail oriented because if I was a seller, I would notice that it's been on for 180 days. I've noticed it was the end of the exclusive. I would notice um, that my listing is not selling and I'm upset about it. So I don't really, I get very surprised, I, I guess. This, um, <clears throat> so this does happen. It definitely does not mean that the apartment can't be sold. <laughs> it happens, especially in a market where prices are going down. And so what happens is even when the seller is cutting the price in conjunction with the advice of the seller's agent, the market is going down faster than than sort of the price cut. So what happens is it just lingers on the market. But it doesn't mean that it's doomed. And I know that there are some quote-unquote tricks you could do to spruce an apartment up. Things that I've done in the past is I've actually suggested to the seller that we renovate. Because the first thing you have to ask is, well, why is it on the apartment for this long, why, uh, the market for this long? There are usually There's usually a reason. It's often price. But sometimes there are some other reasons. So one time I had a, a, a listing where the bathroom needed work, and that was the biggest complaint we had. The bathroom was requires too much work. The seller actually took it off the market for a month, did a bathroom reno, a very, very minor reno. It wasn't a big reno, and it sold very quickly after that. And then when you put the listing back on, the key is you write in the description back on the market and you put the date, like today's date. This way – when a seller or a buyer, I should say, sorry, when a buyer sees that, 
the first thing they'll say is, oh, man, it's been on the market for six months. But then they're going to see back on the market and they're going to wonder, oh, maybe there's a reason for this. Maybe maybe there's been some change. And it'll, it'll it kind of spur them to ask a question or two about it. Anyway, that's worked very effectively for me. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And the back on market um, uh, marketing is is very very effective. Uh, but you know, one of the the, the first questions <clears throat> I always get, even if it's first day on the market, and, and buyers just don't necessarily know that, the first question I always get is, "How long is it on the market?" Right. Mm-hmm. So you know, you have to be prepared for that answer every time out of the box. And I will I will tell you, ninety five percent of the ninety six ninety seven percent of the time, people walking into an apartment on an open house will ask you that question, even in private showings. I would How say long? I would say I hate to play devil's advocate, but I don't really hate it. I, I don't disagree. With, I, I mean, I don't agree with you guys. Um, I find that the majority of people don't read descriptions at all. They don't. And I, unless it's a investor who is specifically looking for a tenant in place, because I'm I'm actually shocked that Street Easy hasn't put a tenant in place tab or some sort of note towards the top of the listing. I guess there aren't enough listings that have a tenant in place, but but I find that people don't read the description, even if it's right in the beginning. And I, and if they do, I've actually had clients who see the back on the market and they find, they're like, I think that means there's more negotiability. They, they find more, not desperation, but um, yeah, just more negotiability once that's put out there. They're like, if they weren't really trying hard to sell it, they would have just put it back. So the average person that walks into an open house who just started looking probably doesn't read the description. But I will tell you, the serious buyer that just lost out on four apartments, well, they are so serious. They will read every nook and cranny. They'll read the description. They'll, read, they'll look at the floor plan. They know exactly what's going on. And an apartment that's been on the market that long, the truth is someone that just started in the market is probably not going to be buying that anyway. But someone that's been looking for a while may find they, – they are going to read that description. And they may say, okay, there's been a real change to it. They're, they are going to find out what the details are, I believe. I mean, so it's just, it just depends on who you're marketing to. But those buyers that have been looking and searching and losing apartments – they, I mean, people come in there, they know the square footage, they have the floor plan, they know exactly, these are savvy New York buyers, as you said earlier, right? These are savvy New York real estate buyers. Many of them know exactly what's going on. Let me ask you two something. So in, in, in the perfect world, mm-hmm. you know, and then the real estate market is always up and down, so we know, never know what a perfect world is. But from the time a first-time buyer starts their search, okay, and they typically go out on open houses to kind of get a feel for the marketplace, the price point, the neighborhoods, the whatever – how long does it take a buyer to go from I just started my search to getting serious and now okay now I want to I'm really ready to buy? How, what, what is that time frame? People ask me this all the time. I don't think there is a specific time frame. I, I've had um, clients buy the first apartment they've seen, and I have a client that took two years to buy something. Uh, you know, I think it depends on the situation you're in. Um, you know, are you selling something else? to then buy something because you might start looking before you've gotten to contract with the other thing you're selling. Um, you know, if you are looking after you've sold or after you're in contract, you might feel like there's more urgency to buy and more urgency to find something and, and sign on it. Um, you know, ha- are you having a child? Did you already have the child? Like, I think that there's a ton of situations, but I will say, um, especially with first time buyers, and this is either when someone loves me or hates me. <laughs> I always say, um, 
I never want someone to see too many places because I think that it makes people think too much and I think it drives themselves crazy. If you could, in a perfect world, see, you know, in my opinion, five to ten apartments that are perfectly, not perfectly, but fit a ton of your criteria, I truly think you're seeing a lot of the market. Because and you're not driving yourself crazy. You're seeing good things that are at the top of the list. All right, we have to leave it there. We are live, and this is Good Morning New York. We're coming right back after these commercial breaks. Don't go away. The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Aliens with Gas is the program you're listening to. We are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. And we're going to play the rest of the Uli John Roth interview on our overtime. And I dig that because you're doing the, the Brady Bunch thing, aren't you? I am. Because <laughs> I have a, yeah, a theremin app right. on my phone. So it's not, you know, a real theremin. If anybody knows the Brady Bunch, what I'm talking about. Keep watching the skies. That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back with Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate and Phil Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com, who's doing all kinds of hand things. Me. I'm not quite <laughs> sure what he's trying to tell me. But go ahead, finish your point or start no, your point. No, 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 Vince, you asked the question, how many apartments or how long does it take generally for buyers to go from I'm not that serious to serious? Matt was saying, uh, you know, really depends. I agree, it does depend. Some people buy in the first apartment. Some people take two years. But I do think it's important to give people an average of how long it takes because people have leases that are coming up and they don't know how the process works. So they may say, hey, how long does it really take for me to to look at apartments and get a sense of what's out there? So I usually say a couple of months. It could take you a couple of months before you really know what you want. Absolutely. And then you could start to, you know, I said, I said, look, at some point you're probably going to know more than, than I do 
in this particular type of apartment that you're looking for. You're going to know if something's priced well or not priced well, you know, just probably better than I will because you're going to be so good on, on what's out there and, and the inventory. Um, and so that's that's what I would say on that. And it, it really depends. People could find something right away. It could take two years, but generally it takes a few months before they become very, very serious. I agree with both of you. And I, and I always tell um, my clients, you know, personal stories of <clears throat> my real estate days before I was a real estate agent. And I was working in corporate, and I used to, you know, buy and sell apartments. Started out because I needed an apartment, and then it became a hobby. I used to like just doing this: buy one, fix it up, sell it; buy another one, buy one, fix it up, sell it. You know, whatever. Always was in motion. And of course, my real estate agent, who was a Corcoran agent at the time, um, loved me. I was like an annuity, right? <laughs> Constantly generating income for her. So you know, she would yell at me every once in a while. She was an older woman. I loved her dearly. But she'd say, you're out of your mind, you're crazy, what are you doing? You just bought this six months, seven months, what are you doing? But to both of your points, though, it can take a, a while to to find just the right place. And in Matt's example before, up to two years sometimes, I was very specific. I was living on the Upper East Side at the time. It was very specific with what I wanted. I wanted pre-war only and condo if I can get it. You know That limits my availability of apartments up there to very few. So it's sometimes also a waiting game if you're waiting for something specific. Now, many years later, we have all these glass towers, all these new condos all over the city, not just the Upper East Side. It is what it is. My famous story and the end of this story is I ended up living on the West Side because, again, pre-war and condo. So uh, I bought an apartment at the Century, 25 Central Mm -hmm. Park West on Central Park because I couldn't find anything that I wanted on the East Side. And that's how I started the next 20 years of my life living on the West side. So, you know, there, there, there's, you know, good and bad to a real estate search, but the key there is, and you guys know it, work with the best agents that you can find, trust them, have confidence in them and be patient because you will absolutely always find what you want. The one thing I wanted to add too, I know Matt mentioned he usually doesn't like buyers to see too many apartments. He kind of like, I, I disagree with that slightly because every buyer's different. Some buyers, they need to see 30 or 40 apartments and I'm fine with that. I mean, some of them want to see two or three or four and that's it and they're done and I'm also fine with that. And if that's I ideal. if I were to tell a buyer up front, you know, we're just, and I'm not saying, Matt, that you do this, but if I were to tell a buyer up front, we're only going to look at five to 10, some of them, that may feel suffocating because they may feel like, well, wait, why do I have to make a decision after only five or 10? Mm-hmm. I usually say, look at as many apartments as you want. You know, the truth is once they see five or 10, they probably have seen enough, but I don't want them up front mm-hmm. to feel like there's some kind of restriction. You know, they're the ones who determine whether they're ready not to buy, you know, not me. So that's kind of how, with our how, little, how I With our little it. coaching though, because sometimes people can get stuck in the mud. They can. Unnecessarily. All right, moving on. Here's interesting. I'm going to move over to the rental side for a little bit. The landlord is in your in your building is turning apartments in that building into condos, okay? So my rent-stabilized one-bedroom apartment that I'm currently living in, for example, on the top floor, fourth floor, comes with roof rights. Uh, he's going to ask $800,000 for it when he can sell it. And uh, this person needs to know how much money should they ask for in a buyout. So, in other words, the landlord is going to buy out tenants in the building because he wants the apartments back. He's converting them and going to be selling them on the open market as condominiums. So, you know, what should you ask for? If you know he's asking 800 say you've lived there for 20 or 25 years, your rent is fairly low, $1,700 a month. I'm just making these numbers up. What kind of number do you ask for It's as a buyout? <laughs> 
I was going to say it's probably more fun, no offense, Phil, to hear from me because I'm not a rental expert. Um, <laughs> but I I actually, so one of my friends just had this happen to him in Hell's Kitchen. And um, he called me and he first was like, so he's going to put it on the market for this. Um, you know, since I'm trying to think of what I should offer him uh, to buy it, you know, directly without commissions, without all these things. And so that's how the discussion started. And then, and then he said to me, and if, of course, I've, you know, decide that I just can't afford it, um, you know, how much do you think I should ask for for a buyout? And I was like, well, it's definitely not my expertise, but um, I always like to think about things logically and economically. So if it was, say, let's do it to a better, you know, a more general number. So it's a million dollars. Um, you know, I think what I said to him was, how much can you afford to put down? And then we figured out um, how much he needed to be able to afford what he was going to put it on the market for, what the landlord was going to put it on the market for. So I thought that that would be a very interesting way to look at it. Like, what is the separation from what you can afford and what you need to buy it? For what the landlord is going to ask for it, I thought that was an interesting way to determine buyout. There, there, there's really no right or wrong. Yeah, there's no right or wrong. But well, on. no, I was going to say. So if you're considering whether to ask the landlord for a buyer or not, um, if you want to stay in that apartment, like let's just say you really don't want to move, then just stay there. You don't have to. Just right. stay there as long. I mean, let them come to you. Let them keep on increasing their offer. Um, however, if you're in a situation where you kind of want to move anyway and you want to use that money, the buyout money for to buy another apartment or what have you, yeah. I mean, again, wait as long as possible, but then you may be a little more willing to negotiate earlier. I don't think there's any right number. It, it, I can't say if it's 800000 I can't tell you what that means because it so depends on what the landlord wants, what you want. But generally, wait as long as you can. Do not leave the rent stabilized apartment unless you have to. Let them come to you. I also now, think now, ask for a high. Like the least they get, the worst they could say is no, right? You know? Well, mm-hmm. fine. But he, but here's here's another strategy, okay? So given the example, you don't mind leaving, okay? If you're going to get a good buyout, you don't mind leaving, you're going to go, move on, whatever. The real answer is don't do anything. You know the landlord is going to try to buy it from you, going to eventually list it and, and sell it for 800 or a million, whatever the number is. You just sit back and be cool. And the strategy is let him come to you, as Matt just said, with a number. Or you come up with a high number in your head if he does start that conversation. But basically, don't ask for anything. If the landlord is offering buyouts, the landlord should be coming to you with a figure, then play very hard to get. Because if he wants that apartment, he's going to pay what he needs to pay for it. Mm-hmm. What's what? What's the downfall? You get to stay there because he's not going to agree on a number? It's your right. apartment. You've been right. living there for 20 years. Who cares? Right. There's almost right. no downside for you. There's no downside yeah. for you. All right, moving on. If you have been living in New York City for a while, you already know what a monthly rent payment here could easily cover a mortgage and utilities in any other part of the country, even the suburbs here of New York City. And while the thought of home ownership for New Yorkers that aren't millionaires is not impossible, it's far from easy. According to Street Easy's findings, the average uh, tipping point where rent would exceed the cost of buying a home in New York City is 5.6 years, up from last year's average of 4.9 years. The increase in the amount of time it takes to, um, to break even can be attributed to both rising mortgage rates and the softening rental market. What are your thoughts on that? 
I don't know. I mean, I, I really need to see the assumptions that go into that model. I've tried to make models like that myself, and there's and, and I do have a working model, actually, and there's so many assumptions. It's so sensitive to the littlest things. So when I hear that, I don't necessarily feel like there's been a huge change in the last year. I mean, what's it saying? It's saying it's going from 49 5.6. I think it also, um, you know, all of these, I guess, charts and equations and models, I, they all use different numbers, I find. So, you know, are they using asking prices on sale? Are they using asking prices on rent? Because where we do differ in the market that we're in is obviously that people are negotiating. So if you're using, especially an asking price on rent, I bet you that number is not accurate. And I think that, I mean, use me, for example, I'm buying my first apartment in Manhattan and, um, you know, I've rented for a while and I'm with my, after I close on my purchase, my monthly mortgage and maintenance is going to be $700 lower than my rent monthly. That's including after ta- the tax effect? Everything. Or, okay. It's including everything. Taking into so, account tax, tax yeah. effect, right? Yeah. Tax I mean, I, you know, so I, I think it all depends on, um, on the accurate numbers that they're using. The, the one big takeaway from this, though, and some agents and brokers probably don't like me saying this, but it does show you that you kind of need to be in an apartment for like five years if you're buying something to make it worth it relative to a rental. So, And I usually would tell buyers, I would say, look, if you're not going to hold on to this apartment for five to seven years, you want to seriously think about whether it's worth it because there are a lot of costs involved. There's there's just you know, buying costs, um, there's selling costs, and then of course you know there's, there's All right, opportunity costs. We have to go. We are out of time. Unfortunately, that's our show for today. Thanks to everyone for being here. We'll be back next in two weeks, rather. Next week is a holiday. Be kind to one another. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.